This is America on the Road, named best radio show by the International Automotive Media Conference, and now in its 28th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. A new study shows that the move to vehicle electrification faces more hurdles than many imagine. Uh, you probably heard some of them right here on America on the Road, and Chris is nodding his head uh, knowingly. We'll have the details on what the study found coming up later in this segment. In a related story, the transition to EVs now hinges on made-in-America batteries and on raw materials mined and processed in America. But there's only one hitch, and we'll tell you what that is coming up. I'm sure Chris knows what it is already. Also in the news, Elon Musk and Tesla got good news on one court case at least this week. And then it got more good news from the U.S. Treasury Department. We'll have the details for you a little later in the show. Some other American car companies got good news, I think, and some other car companies, not even, not just American. In any case, I'm Jack Nierad, no matter who got good news, and with me is co-host Chris Teague. He is always good news. Chris lives at one end of the country, I live at the other. Each week we get together to talk about cars, the car industry, and how you can get the most for your automotive dollar. Chris, uh, yours in Maine, I, I think the temperatures have been absolutely unbelievably frigid. Tell us about a bit about that before we start talking about cars. So this is now four days ago, 14, negative 14 degrees, real temperature, minus 43 uh, degrees wind chill. Uh, Mount Washington, which is a few hours from here in New Hampshire, minus 108, which I think is a, a wow. record for the United States. Minus 108? <laughs> uh, I think it was colder there than on the surface of Mars uh, that day. So <laughs> we survived. Uh, all the animals survived. Every, no, no pipes froze. So we, we came through it. How about you? Yeah, we are having better weather, actually. It's been r relatively cool for Southern California, but that means, you know, highs of about 60 or so. Uh, certainly lived through that. I played a little baseball uh, last weekend. I'm hoping to start playing baseball again uh, real soon. So a uh, new team this year. So we'll see how that goes. I'm hopeful on that. Uh, but uh, so much about our personal lives, right? <laughs> Let's talk about cars we're going to test in this show. What are you going to have for us? I had the perfect car for winter, Jack, the rear-wheel drive Cadillac CT4V Blackwing. It's a performance sedan. I can't wait to tell you about it. It was very entertaining in the cold weather. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that in a cool car, you know. Uh, I'd love to test uh, some Cadillacs and some other GM products myself. Maybe I'll try to set that up coming up. My vehicle was a vehicle very close to my heart, actually, the 2023 Mazda MX-5 Miata. This was the Club RF version that I was driving. I've loved Miata since it was born. I, actually, I went way back, even before the birth of Miata. Mazda sounded out a few of us at Motor Trend uh, and other enthusiast publications way, way back about whether a two-seat sports car was a wise thing to do, I assured them that it was. And it turns out it, it was, wasn't it? So we'll talk about that in, in the road test segment. There's a terrific guest for all of us this week, Matt Lorenzo, who guest hosts on the show occasionally when Chris can't make it, uh, is our guest on the show. He is the author of How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car, A Tightwad's Guide to EV Ownership, and I can attest to the fact he is a bit of a tightwad. <laughs> uh, but he's a great guy, a true automotive expert. He's a North American car that your juror uh, was uh, editor of Road and Track back in the day. I think he was editor of Road and Track about the time I was editor of Motor Trend magazine. So we were friendly rivals back then. We've known each other for 
for decades now, so I'm excited to have him as a guest. But we have automotive news for you before we have that, so let's dive right in. Let's talk a bit about this study on electric vehicles. They also talked about sustainable aviation, which is interesting in, in this study, but uh, maybe we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit, although that certainly is not our area of expertise. The takeaway from this is automakers may not be able to build as many electric vehicles as they would like to build. And consumer demand, I think even more important, consumer demand for those AVs might not materialize as quickly as as anticipated because of several issues. And uh, the biggest issue is the looming shortage of battery raw materials, uh, which the study says, and this is in quotes, is in conflict with manufacturing reality. (laughs) So, you know, these uh, exaggerated reports of how quickly we're going to move electric vehicles could be complicated by something we've run into with conventional vehicles, and that's uh, supply chain issues. So what's your quick reaction to all this, Chris? Well, it's a, for a lot of automakers, it's a brand new supply chain. These things don't spring up overnight and, you know, could take a decade or more to really get, uh, you know, established. So I think that combined with the fact that we just don't have the infrastructure and then the fact that they cost a whole lot, not a whole lot, but significantly more, I guess, in some cases, that's enough to keep people away or at least temporarily keep people away. Yeah. This report is called the 2023 Moving World Report. It's published by the investment firm of UP Partners. So uh, in theory, they don't have a, a an ox to gore here, uh, a dog in the fight or some other animal reference we can throw at, at this. They do say that there's a massive dislocation between demand and supply of key materials. And those key materials are, of course, lithium, cobalt, and nickel, uh, which are used in the manufacture of of batteries. And it's it's a big deal. Uh, It's a really big deal because there could be a uh, crippling shortage of this that would basically limit the number of EVs that could be produced. And and we've seen what happens when inventory is shorter than demand, right? I mean, we've seen that for the last couple of years uh, just across the auto industry. I mean, that uh, spells trouble, I think, for EVs going forward. Yeah. And some of these extraction operations and mining operations, these are huge, huge operations that take, a long, again, a long time to get off the ground. Uh, there are a lot of companies or some companies that are working on recycling EV batteries, re- re-extracting those materials from used batteries and re-implementing them. But you know, the reality is that's the other the other side of this too, is that as the EVs age and you know the batteries become a thing, uh, they have to be repurposed or recycled. So there are a whole lot of other things that need to be thought of here, not only just the raw materials, which are obviously a huge, huge issue right now. Right. Well, I teased a little bit about aviation, so let me just touch on that real quickly. There are some people who consider like battery-powered planes and uh, hydrogen maybe is a more likely fuel uh, what they're suggesting is sustainable aviation fuel is the only rational pathway, this according to the report, for aviation carbon emissions in the next 20 years. Hopefully we won't have to give up flying because <laughs> it certainly change the way we do things, right, and change where, where we can go. Well, here's a related story, and this is out of the Wall Street Journal. Of course, the U.S. government and companies are shelling out billions of dollars to establish supply chain for batteries in North America, but it's it's not where it should be. Uh, or, you know, that's the takeaway I got from reading this. As they go to put more electric vehicles on the road, we just don't have the ability to mine and then refine in the United States, which is what the current legislation calls for, or certainly favors, these raw materials that are used in batteries, a, a lot less make batteries. Uh, the raw materials are mined in Australia, China, 
the, the Congo and, and Indonesia, among other places. And they're mostly refined in China. China has much more lax environmental protections, I think, and, and OSHA kind of protections. So this is another kind of major stumbling block, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think there's only one uh, lithium mine or lithium production facility in the United States. It's in Nevada. So I think, you know, the, again, building these things takes time. But I think the worst part, the worst scenario we could find ourselves in is extracting and shipping materials all over the world, huge distances, because it does, it adds to the carbon footprint of these cars as they're being built. So uh, I really do hope that there is some domestic, some accelerated domestic effort that we're not seeing yet on the horizon. Well, one of the things that uh, could accelerate that, and it depends on how you look at things too, and without getting too political, I mean, this is in the Inflation Reduction Act that has incentivized North American production of batteries and electric vehicles, which I guess in theory I'm in favor of. Uh, what I'm really in favor of is the consumer getting great deals and, and uh, you know, where the vehicles are built, less important to me in a lot of ways than subsidizing or penalizing outside overseas uh, sources of these vehicles. This is another thing that's uh, in there is there is $2.8 billion being expended to 20 companies to help them build batteries or build battery infrastructure. And I'm not certain the government, again, my personal opinion, uh, you, and you might have a different one, Chris, but you know, spending that amount of taxpayer money, I'd just rather see the market take care of this. If there's a market for batteries, uh, let American companies compete uh, as they compete for everything else. Yeah, I can see that. But I think uh, <laughs> the intention, well, I think I, I think I could agree with you on this one, Jack. The investment of all that money into these into these facilities, when the automakers uh, may have gone down that path on their own via the market, as you're saying, uh, feels a little uh, extreme. There are other parts of the Inflation Inflation Reduction Act related to electric vehicles that I don't have a huge uh, affinity for, mainly the fact that they can't seem to determine the rules and stick with them going forward or for any period of time. Uh, we're only, what, now five, five and a half weeks into 2023, and the rules feel like they've changed five times since December 31st. Yeah, well, so. and we're about to report on that. I mean, that's that's our next story teed up, and uh, it has been very frustrating. And I, I'm also kind of amazed that you have something that is has been legislated. I mean, it's been approved. It's been signed by the president. It is law. And then you have all this back and forth about what the law really means and what qualifies for what. And I, I think that's frustrating to a lot of people. I think it's frustrating to lawmakers, <laughs> among others, who thought they kind of, you know, set this up in a particular way. And it's not working out the way that, you know, some of them at least thought they had made a deal for. So there's that. But uh, Tesla, General Motors, Ford and Volkswagen got good news from the Treasury Department uh, in the past week or so, uh, they have found that uh, electric vehicles that were not previously eligible for this $7,500 tax credit have now, you know, suddenly become eligible, which maybe is is rightful. Uh, you know, maybe they're correcting or wrong. It depends on how you look at it. The difference is how they were classified. SUVs can be priced up to $80,000 to qualify for the tax credit, while cars, sedans, and wagons sedans, coupes, and wagons, because sedans are cars and cars are sedans, and they're all cars, I guess, are up to $55,000. Again, comment on this. What, what's your take on and they're not even being able to figure out what car is what? Well, I, yeah, so you, you enter 2023 thinking that you're going to get a tax credit or believing that you're not going to get a tax credit. A couple of weeks later, you find out the vehicle that you were shopping for 
has changed eligibility or some sort of that. And then you hear that in March or when the, the Treasury gets its act together and releases its guidance, that could change again when the raw materials, actually the requirements for raw materials actually come into effect. Well, when we come back, we will be road testing some vehicles. Stay with us for that. The MX-5 Miata and the Cadillac CT4V. We'll have those road tests for you coming up. So stay with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Christine Jack. We're right back with you for road test time, and we've got really cool vehicles. I think kind of performance-oriented vehicles. A lot of times we've got three rows or pickup trucks or something like that, but you've got a performance car to talk about that uh, should be a lot of fun, and I'm curious as how it did in the snow. Yeah, I have to be honest. I So I love cars like the Miata two-door coupe cars, but since I've had kids and I've spent most of my time in a car with the kids or taking them someplace and my time driving is uh, back is alone, the sedan is really what speaks to me. The wagon speaks to me. Performance SUVs even in some degree uh, are appealing, but this car is a it's a compact sedan, so it's a little bit smaller than like, uh, it's not a full-size luxury car, so let's just say that. The CT4V Blackwing Jack, it's got a 3.6 liter twin turbocharged V6 engine, 472 horsepower power, 445 pound-feet of torque. Those are serious muscle car numbers from just a couple of decades ago. And in this car, it, man, it's a it's a quick car. So uh, we talked about it being rear-wheel drive, which is not ideal for the snow. Uh, all-wheel drive is obviously far, much, far better. But though it comes standard on summer run-flat tires, this car had Michelin Alpine. Uh, they're kind of a performance cold weather. I won't call them a, a full dedicated winter tire. But Jack, I have to be honest with you. I was surprised. I'd never tried these tires. I think they worked really well with this car. Uh, the temperatures, as I mentioned earlier in the show, dropped well below zero and stayed there for a couple of days. And this car just drove on and plowed on forward like there was no big deal. I did find that they don't have the best grip when you put your foot down, especially in second gear. You can still break break traction in second gear with these tires, but uh, they're fantastic. So have you tested or have you been behind the wheel of the CT4 V Blackwing or even the CT5? Either I have, yeah. I think in North American car that you're testing, I got behind the wheel of the Blackwing. and It's an awesome car. And it, it, in some ways, oddly, or maybe not so oddly, it reminded me of my 1965 442, Oldsmobile 442. Kind of in some ways the same size and just a ton of horsepower. It's cool to have a, a vehicle like that that has a lot of horsepower, isn't it? I do agree. And you're never going to argue with more horsepower. But uh, Cadillac did a really good job here getting that power to the ground. So it's got a uh, stand of adaptive suspension, magnetic ride control, Brembo brakes, and an electronic a rear electronic uh, differential. So you do get great traction out of this car uh, in the corners and, and when you're when you're pushing it hard. So uh, pricing, which I should have mentioned to begin with, starts around 62 grand. Uh, they do make a couple of special editions for this car. Uh, not sure how much longer it's going to stick around, but this will definitely be, this CT4 and the CT5 will be the last of their kind for Cadillac before they go electric. So those are pretty special cars. As tested price was just under $77,000. I want to go through some of these options because I think they're pretty cool. So uh, $4,000, $4,900, excuse me, tan and jet black leather interior. The sport seats in this car are fantastic. Uh, I'm six feet tall. We talk about this all the time, uh, about 215 pounds. And even for my larger size, they're perfectly comfortable seats. They're wide enough for my body and they're extremely supportive. So a lot of great things going on with the sport seats here. My kids have plenty of room in the back. I will say though, Jack, this car is not the best family car for people with full-size car seats. Uh, thankfully, we're past that stage, but 
didn't have to worry too much about it, but there would be some issues if I had to uh, fight for a position with a car seat in the back. 10-speed automatic transmission in this car is a $2,275 option. It comes standard with a six-speed manual. I like the 10-speed automatic, Jack. Uh, I want to get your opinion to see if you've driven it, but I found it was a little bit sh slow to uh, downshift. When you put your foot down, it takes a minute to get up to speed, but everyday driving, normal shifts are quite quick. It works uh, very well to keep the engine in its power band, especially when you're in the V uh, sport button mode. I call it sport button because it's a big V button right on the steering wheel, but uh, pretty responsive. What do you think about it? I think it's cool. I think 10 speeds in some ways are, you know, you have so many speeds to go through as you're accelerating. It's like boom, 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 boom. You, you know, you're almost between gears as much as you're in a gear, which is a kind of an odd kind of thing in a way. In some ways, yeah. Maybe a, a six-speed or, or eight-speed automatic might be a, a better choice, but uh, it certainly works fine. Yeah, you probably you probably lose fuel economy on the highway and some other yeah. things there, but it is an interesting sensation when you have the exhaust open in this car and you're in the ten and you're going through the gears in the ten-speed because it does. The first four or five gears are very fast, a very fast shift when you get through. But uh, so this car also had a $1,600 performance data recorder, so it comes with a dash cam and uh, track time and all the the stuff there. But my favorite option is actually. The $1,500 bronze wheels. This car was uh, electric blue, which is like a bright sky blue with bronze wheels. And maybe it was just sitting against the snow, but man, this is one of the slickest looking cars I've seen in a long time. And as I was telling you on the phone yesterday, Jack, uh, I actually have started scheming on how I can afford to buy one of these cars. Uh, I don't know that I would spec it all the way out to 80 grand, almost 80 grand like this car, but uh, this is an enchanting car to drive. It's perfectly comfortable in daily driving brutally fast when you want it to be uh, i didn't get to take it on a track obviously it's not the time of year to do that here but i can imagine as others have said that it's a fantastic track car so all around a great job here uh, if you can afford it and you're looking for a performance car and don't want a, a, a european model this is the way to go well i'm i love the fact that you fall in love with these cars you know you drive some of these cars you get excited by them and then I, you want to buy one, you know? I mean, there's very few cars that I test these days that I really want to buy, but maybe it's because I've been doing this so long that I'm used to having a new car every week. And, you know, I kind of like that smorgasbord kind of thing. You know, maybe it's my Swedish heritage. I don't know, but uh, I kind of like having that. And I certainly liked having the uh, Mazda MX-5 Miata for a week. I mean, this is a car I have loved from the beginning. Uh, as I mentioned, even before the car was introduced, I was kind of sounded out, one of the few that was sounded out about whether this was a good thing or not. I said yes, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, that the Miata is still around, uh, largely in the same form. You know, it doesn't have the same body shape as it, it did initially, but it's still very recognizable as a Miata. And the same basic formula, which is, you know, front engine, rear drive, small two-seater, you could almost say borderline too small. I'm not six feet, feet tall. I think I'm 5'10 these days. I think I lost an inch when I hurt my back, but uh, used to be 5'11 and I'd lost height. A lot of people try to lose weight and I didn't try to lose height, but I did. Not a ton of horsepower, but now 181 horsepower, significantly more horsepower than when introduced from a two liter four cylinder engine. All the Miatas have that engine and it works just fine. A six speed manual transmission, I think is definitely the way to go in this particular car. I mean, this is in so many ways a throwback car, you know, certainly use a manual transmission. Uh, it is offered in a, a six-speed automatic as well. Uh, if you want that, you're allowed, you know, I can live with that, but uh, I would not recommend that. The vehicle I had was kind of the Zooty version. It's the Miata Club version, and it has, uh, you know, a lot of stuff. And I was in the RF version, which is the collapsible hardtop version. 
again, I, I wouldn't necessarily choose that one. I'm, I'm kind of a soft top guy. I've got a, a, a two top uh, 1962 Corvette that uh, the hard top has been on it maybe two or three times uh, over the course of the multi-decades that I've owned that car. I just like the soft top kind of thing and mostly with the top down. And with the Miata, you can kind of just throw the, <laughs> throw the top over your shoulder and, it, and it's gone. But a lot of great stuff in the club version, which is kind of the even more performance-oriented version of a performance car. It has Bilstein dampers, front shock tower brace, limited slip differential, all that stuff. You know, it's just better for go fast. The Miata Club is is one of those where it's a, an autocrosser slash daily driver kind of vehicle, you know, kind of set up to do a little, uh, at least mild competition. And of course, Miata classes are all over the place. And, and I, I, that's such a fun racing class because everything is so evil, evenly matched. It's almost like match racing in a lot of ways. I, I just love that. Now, uh, the club models have Apple CarPlay, wireless Apple CarPlay, which makes them more modern. And uh, you can hear that over the blast of the, the wind blowing past your temples with the, with the top down. Just so much to like about this. I mean, give me your take on Miata. I'm kind of gushing here about it. Yeah, well, there's a reason that they say that Miata is always the answer. Uh, it's one of the few remaining cars that offers a direct driver-to-car connection. And I agree with you with the six-speed manual transmission is a much better choice in this car because of that connection that people tend to form with these cars. It's a lot bigger than it used to be, but it's still smaller than almost every other car on the road. So you get that, that great handling, uh, the roadster feel. I actually like the collapsible hard top jack. I think, well, at least where I live, it's nice to have the option of uh, a little bit more more substance over your head. But I agree with you. These cars are uh, they're becoming a rarity. There are very few left like it on sale today. Uh, and I'm very happy that it's still around. Yeah. The vehicle I had also had the Brembo BBS Recaro package. So you had the Recaro seats and the, the Brembo brakes and, and all that stuff. It was a little pricey, I'd say, uh, close to $39,000 MSRP. But still, that that's well below the average transaction price of a vehicle out there these days. So certainly I would say it's a bargain. And I think you're hard-pressed to find a vehicle that can put more smiles on your face per dollar than the Miata. Uh, it, not a daily driver for very many people, but I think uh, as a second car or just a car to keep in the garage and then blast out on a Saturday or Sunday morning. And I could see driving that uh, in the main highways and just having an absolute blast in that vehicle. Yeah, the people here in summer that you see with the top down look like they're having the times of their life. So I, I could agree with you on that. And it's a car you keep for a long time too. I mean, you buy a Miata and I, I pro you probably wouldn't turn it over in two or three years. You probably keep that, you know, maybe under some kind of car cover in the garage for ready for it uh, coming up. Well, when we come back, we will have a special guest for you. Matt Lorenzo will be with us. He's the author of How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car. And he'll have some, I think, pretty interesting thoughts about electric cars and, and where it's going. He's been tracking what's been going on with the, the government and subsidies and all that kind of stuff. So we'll talk with him about that and, and some other things as well. He certainly knows a lot more than just electric cars. So stay with us on America on the Road with Chris Teague. This is Jack Red back with you. And thanks so much for being with us. Stay with us through the break, and we'll be back with Matt Lorenzo. Hi, this is Jackie Red, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs, my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. 
After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him. He meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel, so he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon and at E.M. Lancey Publishers. Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red. Thanks for checking it out. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack and Red back with you, and we have a terrific guest. Uh, you recognize Matt DiLorenzo and the, the name Matt DiLorenzo because he's been on the show. He's co-hosted with us, automotive expert par excellence, the author of How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car, A Tightwad's Guide to Electric Vehicle Ownership. Matt, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Great to be here, Jack. Well, uh an interesting week for the automobile in a lot of different ways, right? And Chicago Auto Show unfolding before us. Certainly you're an electric vehicle expert, but the Chicago Auto Show really isn't much about electric vehicles so much as it is about very conventional three-row SUVs. Uh, what's your thoughts? Well, the Chicago Auto Show is a great showcase for the public, and it, it's now the first big major auto show of the year. And, um, you know, uh, it's a chance for people to actually see what, you know, what they're going to be buying in the next 12 months. And a lot of it are SUVs. You know, the big the big news here is Toyota's uh, new Grand Highlander, which is a roomier uh, version, three row version of its uh, current Highlander um, midsize uh, SUV. So I I don't know. You know, the, it, it's really amazing that all this talk of electrics and whatever People love traditional SUVs for hauling around the family and, and you know, um, their personal transportation. Yeah, and I don't think that's going to end. And it's, I think, very difficult to conceive of a three-row SUV electric powered that isn't either super expensive or has very limited range. I, I don't know how you get the, the kind of range and, and all the versatility you'd have from a three-row SUV uh, with electric power these days. It just seems really difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, I, and that's the conundrum that the auto manufacturers face right now is that people are demanding one thing, certain, and they have certain expectations about those vehicles. And on the other hand, there's this big push to electrify everything. You know, a, a, a really uh, a case in point on where we're really headed is GM's recent announcement that they're going to do a sixth generation of the small block V8. Uh, they're spending like uh, $900 million to retool a bunch of these plants. And that engine, although it's used in things like Corvettes and Camaros and stuff like that, is primarily the thing that drives their pickups and body-on-frame full-size SUVs, which are still a very healthy market and a source of a lot of their uh, sales and profits. Yeah, really important from a profit picture. And I would say of any company out there, General Motors has been emphasizing electric vehicles more so than many, certainly. And at the same time, them making this move really tells you that certainly the internal combustion engine isn't dead, right. is it? 
It isn't. You know, even Volkswagen, you know, which is leading the charge with the ID4 and they're bringing in the ID Buzz and they're going to be all electric. Uh, they're using the Chicago Auto Show to show a facelifted Atlas, which is their three row, you know, midsize SUV, which has been very popular and is actually for the company that brought the Beetle that was founded on the Beetle. Their fortunes were really turned around here in the U.S. with their uh, move into SUVs with uh, uh, the Tiguan and the, uh, the Atlas. It's really been a godsend for them uh, to go to SUVs and, and SUVs that are gasoline powered, conventionally powered. And I just don't think that's going to go away. I mean, families are still going to want these three row vehicles, these large vehicles. And uh, as I said before, there's, there's really it, it's, I'm hard pressed to think that we're going to get electric vehicles that are going to have that same kind of utility. Uh, I, I, I agree. I think that uh, a lot of the things that we we you know, there's like the law of unintended consequences. And I've said this before, the fact that, you know, trucks and SUVs are so popular is that um, cafe clamped down on big family cars, station wagons, and full-size sedans in the 70s and 80s. And we ended up with a with a, a market that split. And people with large families and wanted V8 power and body-on-frame construction, they all migrated up into the truck market. And that's where they are today. So we'll see what happens. But that's not to say Chicago isn't, you know, there aren't going to be any electrics there. You know, uh, this is the first time that the public will get a chance to see uh, the Dodge Ram uh, electric that they um, debuted at the uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas uh, last month. Yeah, a wild, wild vehicle. We talked about it, I I think, on last week's show, on last week's America on the Road with Ralph Scheel, who is, of course, the chief designer for Stellantis. And, you know, that's a reach-out vehicle. I'm really curious as to the consumer reaction to that, because certainly truck buyers are typically conservative. This is anything but conservative. What's your reaction to that vehicle? You know, I I think there's two sorts of buyers in the market. And and you look at some of the more popular vehicles. I mean, the best-selling vehicle right now in the U.S. is the Ford F-150. That's not to say that there isn't a subset of those buyers who like the idea of electrification. That's why the F-150 Lightning has been, you know, uh, a kind of a hit for them, even though it sells in much fewer numbers than the the main F-150. I see the same thing happening here with the Ram, uh, the electric Silverado. Uh, you see the, the Rivian. They're going to be large niches of the market, but they're not going to replace the, the, uh, the broad swath of work trucks and family personal transportation pickups and and recreational pickups. So it's like they got to be there because everybody else is going there. But I don't see it as being a mainstream type of vehicle. I I do see one of the rumors coming out of uh, Detroit is that GM is looking at a small electric pickup position below like the Colorado, you know, so it's a true compact small electric pickup. Yeah, and maybe a Maverick competitor, right? Exactly. Ford Maverick competitor. Which offers a hybrid as their base model. But I think that kind of vehicle could be a lot of fun and find a market among uh, younger buyers and and, and more, and especially if it's much more affordable uh, than a than a sixty or seventy thousand uh, dollar Silverado, I think they have a chance of it selling in in some significant volumes. Well, you of course are the uh, author of How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car. You're deep into electric cars. You drive electric cars. This has been a very confused couple of months. You know, several <laughs> months, at least you know six months. I, I think actually forced you to revise your book a little bit, right? Tell us about what's going on there. Well, last summer there was the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed, and it made significant 
significant changes in electric vehicle tax policy. So that $7,500 rebate uh, that people were, uh, or tax credit from the government was no longer applied to imported uh, electric vehicles. So you had a bunch of affordable EVs like the Kia Niro and the Hyundai Kona that overnight were no longer eligible for the tax credit. And then you have, starting January 1st, you had things like the Chevrolet uh, Bolt, uh, the Tesla Model 3, and then there's been some confusion over the Model Y, whether it's a SUV or a car, uh, where suddenly... They requalified, right? Right. And there are all these new limitations. So on cars, you can't buy a car that's more than fifty. $55,000 and get the credit. You can't buy an SUV or a, a truck that costs more than $80,000 and get the credit. And if you make more than $150,000 a year or filing jointly $300,000 a year, those credits aren't going to be available to you. So what we've seen is these credits and uh, being moved from helping consumers get into electric vehicles to becoming a, um, a policy that will encourage manufacturers to build electric vehicles in the U.S. and source their battery packs and, and um, minerals in the U.S. Those other more stricter requirements don't kick in until later this year. The Treasury Department's still messing around trying to figure out which vehicles qualify, which ones don't. But it's going to make buying an electric vehicle that much harder because there's going to be so much fine print you're going to have to wade through to find out, well, do I qualify for this one? Do I qualify for a local incentive? It's just, you know, if if they want people to drive electric cars, they're not making it any easier for them to do it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems contradictory. A lot of the, the regulations... Uh, most recently, and certainly from the uh, Anti-Inflation Act, while uh, supposedly uh, to promote green vehicles, to promote electric vehicles, in the short term, it, it's certainly the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, and I, uh, the other uh, interesting things are the, um, uh, the requirements for raw materials that come from, from North America or free trade partners. A lot of the minerals uh, that we get, even though they may be re- extracted here, a lot of it goes to China for processing. So a lot of that stuff doesn't qualify. So now we're 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 faced on one hand with not giving the credits because where the minerals have been processed or where they come from. And on the other hand, uh, there have been new restrictions on mining in the U.S. Um, they just closed off some areas in, in the upper U.S. Uh, to copper mining. And you need a lot of copper for an electric vehicle. Yeah, so some of the government restrictions are contradictory, right? I mean, they're on one side, they're promoting domestic sourcing of minerals, and then they're not allowing you to mine or process those. So right. uh, it, it's kind of a catch-22. Yeah, so... You know, my, my view on it is that electric vehicles are here. There are some, they're fun to drive. There are some affordable options out there. There are some that are way wildly expensive. And uh, if you're a tightwad, you're not going to be in that market. But I think there should be a measured approach. I think you have to be informed on on, on what, how it will fit into your lifestyle, how much it's going to cost you. And that's the reason I wrote the book was kind of a how-to, because a lot of people don't understand. There are a lot of significant differences between owning a gas car and electric. And, and uh, this is kind of a roadmap to help them navigate to see if it's right for them or not. Right. Winter is another factor too. You know, everybody's all of a sudden discovering, oh, it's cold out. Well, <laughs> yeah, there goes your range. It's not going right? to go as far. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, Matt DiLorenzo, Lorenzo, the author of How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car, 
Uh, thanks so much for being with us. We look forward to having you on the show again real soon, Matt. Always great to talk to you. Thanks for being with us. It's been great. Thanks, Jack. And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Christine Jack. Us on America on the Road. We appreciate you listening to us. And it is listener question time. We try to give back by answering listener questions. We love to hear your listener questions. So send it to editor at drivingtoday.com, editor at drivingtoday.com. If you have a question, a comment, you just like to talk to us about the show, we'd love to hear your thoughts. So send us a message and uh, we'll answer your question on an upcoming show. So uh, let's take a question right now. This is from Paul in Vista, California. Paul says this, I'm looking to buy a compact SUV like a Toyota RAV4 or a Nissan Rogue. Do you have recommendations for me? Should I look at hybrids or stick with gasoline versions? What's your take, Chris? Well, the good news is that most of these SUVs, at least in this class, come in a hybrid and some even have a plug-in hybrid variant. So I would recommend, you mentioned uh, the RAV4 hybrid is great, but the RAV4 Prime is also very good. Depending on your commute, could be more uh, economical. If you have an in-town commute, you can rely on that uh, all-electric range and not have to stop at a gas station. The same thing with the uh, Hyundai Tucson plug-in hybrid also has the all-electric range. And finally, the uh, Honda CRV, just standard hybrid, uh, is a very good SUV. It's actually more fun to drive than the standard gas version. But even as we said all this, Jack, I think that if you really wanted to go for it, the gas versions of all these are pretty excellent too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of like the Nissan Rogue and they're going a little different route with a, a three-cylinder engine as their base engine. And I think that's an interesting choice. Toyota gives you a lot of choices. Of course, the RAV4 is one of the most popular vehicles in the United States. And it's a vehicle that I certainly endorse. My, my daughter has a previous generation RAV4 that Knockwood has been just lights out good. I certainly recommend that vehicle. The hybrids, I, I think, are, are becoming less price premiumed uh, against the, the standard gasoline vehicles, which makes them a better buy. I mean, you kind of have to balance that out about, well, uh, you know, if there's two or three thousand dollars in difference in purchase price, I mean, that buys you a lot of gas. Uh, and the fact that, uh, of course, hybrids use gas, you know, it's not like, like they don't use gas at all. Plug-in hybrid maybe is not going to use a ton of gas, but then you have a, a much higher price premium for those vehicles. So, And for some reason, and, and maybe it's just the price, a lot of people are, are shying away from some of these plug-in hybrids. On the other hand, the Toyota RAV4 plug-in hybrid is is so popular that uh, it's it's hard to come by and, and very high priced. Yeah, you actually are seeing some dealer markups on those. They're so hard to come by. They're very, uh, very desirable. But I forgot to mention the Rogue earlier. I do like it. It's got one of the nicer interiors in its class, which is surprising, but it does. The Turbo 3 is... Uh, every bit as capable as the, as the four cylinders and a lot of these others. The interesting thing I'll say real quick before we go to the next one is the equipment levels on these at the base level are very similar to, if you look at them, but the price point, the RAV4, the Rogue, the CRV, uh, the Tucson, they all have a, a standard suite of safety features. They all have, uh, I think they all now have Apple CarPlay and Android Auto and touchscreens. I think Honda fixed that with the newest version. So they're all pretty pretty close to each other in terms of equipment. So it really is a, a term, uh, it comes down to taste and brand, uh, what brand you really prefer, because they're all pretty good. I think the uh, Honda CRV is is one of the largest. If you're looking for a large interior size, big accommodations in this vehicle. I mean, and the CRV is also uh, brand new this year. So worth taking a look at for that reason. Uh, one we didn't talk about is the Kia Sportage, which is now kind of climbed right into the middle of the class. It's the same size as the CRV. I think a, a, a good deal and is available, I think, also in a hybrid as well. Good ones to look at. Well, let's take another question. This is from Kevin in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Kevin says this, I think I read somewhere that EV batteries lose some ability to hold a charge over time. 
I don't want to pay for 300 miles of range and end up with a lot less. Can you help me understand this better? Without being a battery scientist, I will just say this. So if you buy a new phone, a new iPhone or Android phone or whatever, after a couple of years, you notice the battery doesn't quite get you through the day anymore. And the same thing is true with a lithium ion battery in your electric vehicle. Uh, a little while ago, Electric, which is a very uh, well-respected electric vehicle and all things technology publication, studied uh, several thousand EVs. They found a little bit more than 2% battery decline per year. So for a 150-mile EV, that's like 17 miles after five years that you would lose over the course of that period. So uh, things like fast charging repeatedly, your driving style, you know, how how cold it is when you charge and all sorts of those things can play into this. Uh, but the good news is the automakers are covering this with a minimum, what is it, eight-year, 100,000-mile uh, electric battery warranty. I think California requires 10 years, Jack, if I'm not uh, Yes, so some of them do, but some of the, the warranties don't have limits on how much uh, decline in, in uh, overall range then qualify. Uh, you know, they'll say, okay, if it if it goes down to 80%, well, that's okay. But if it goes down below 80%, then we'll start to warranty that and, you know, warrant that and, and pay for that. And, you know, right. uh, what this leads me to wonder, and it's probably not for people who buy these EVs new, but people who are, are maybe looking to buy a used EV, you know, what that what is that EV going to be like in terms of range? at the seven, eight, nine-year-old mark, for example. Probably a lot less range or, or significantly less range than initially. And, uh, you know, no, none of them are bowling us over with range uh, initially, right? Yeah, I think we may see, and I'm saying I think there's absolutely no guarantee behind this, but automakers are starting to include a lot more technology to protect the battery as you're charging and using it. So uh, these things called like state of charge buffers. So you can't charge it all the way to 100%, nor can you de like uh, deplete it all the way to 0% without some intervention there. So it helps protect you and helps to protect the battery when you do, you know, or when you're at the extremes of the charge. And then also the cooling, right? So there's like liquid cooling or liquid uh, heat pumps and things like that, that can preserve the battery as you're charging or prepare the battery more completely for charging so you don't wear it so much. So I think some of this is going to improve over time but i mean it's a real concern but a couple of percent a year jack i mean if you're buying one brand new by the time you get rid of it how much is that really going to impact your daily drive and it, it could impact it significantly or, or maybe not at all <laughs> you know yeah. I, depending i mean if you buy a nissan leaf with not much range to begin with and then it, <laughs> you know it goes down 17 miles that's that's a big issue if you buy something with 350 miles of range and it you know, drops to 300 maybe that doesn't doesn't bother you at all it kind of I, all of this stuff is, is very individualized, isn't it? I mean, much more so than with a, a conventional uh, gasoline-powered car. Well, it's a lot, fun, a lot of fun to talk about because we have science telling, the, telling us how these things should work or how these things are projected to work, but we're not really deep enough into a lot of these electric vehicles other than Tesla, maybe, to see how these things start to play out over time. So uh, we use the word interesting a lot, but I think this is one of those things that it's very interesting to talk about and think about. Yeah, fascinating in a lot of ways, and we'll see how this unfolds. Well, here's another question. This is from Bill in Round Rock, Texas. We're torn between looking at minivans and three-row SUVs. Do you have a preference? What would you recommend for our family of five? Well, I have a family of four and a giant dog, and I'm going to go against the grain of every American car buyer ever and say buy a minivan. 
<laughs> if you have people and gear and stuff to load into a vehicle, minivans are low to the ground. They have gigantic doors. The seats, most of the seats in all the models now move around so you can d- take them out, configure them, fold them flat, and still carry people while you're carrying large items. It's really hard to beat the utility of a minivan, Jack. And I mean, three-row SUVs, they're more stylish. A lot of them are sportier now. You can get like really fast three-row SUVs. Uh, and they're more appealing, I'm not going to lie, but they're also more expensive and they're not as useful when you have a large, like I said, a lot of large number of people or just stuff to carry around. Yeah. My take is a little different uh, because I would say buy what your wife wants to drive. <laughs> if she wants an SUV, even though a mini, and I, I've got to believe a minivan is more practical. And I, I 100% agree with what you just said about minivans versus three row SUVs for a family. And I've got a family of five, although my three children are, are now grown and, and mostly out of the house. But uh, you know, we grew up with three-row SUVs, and my wife wanted an SUV. She didn't want a minivan. And uh, as practical as they are, and uh, all the kind of rational things suggest buying one, we have a Chevy Tahoe that we've loved forever. Kind of kept it forever too, and uh, it's just been a terrific vehicle for us. So, I, I don't think you'd suffer with a three-row SUV, especially a large one like that. You know, not the greatest fuel economy, certainly, but a lot of good choices out there. Minivans, super practical, super cool in some ways. The new ones with hybrid powertrains, great gas mileage on top of everything else. But like you say, there's something about an SUV. Well, I said all that about a minivan right after having bought a three-row Volvo XC90 just a couple of years ago for our family, So, uh, which my wife loves driving. So I guess it really, like you said, pre- personal preference, but there's no denying the minivan's utility. Right. <laughs> well, I, that sums up our show for this week. Chris, I love having you on the show. Love, love talking to you each week. Great insights. Thank you. I love being here. Everybody, I'll tell you if you like what you heard, please check out the sportsmapradio.com website. There you can find us on Saturday's schedule. You can find our podcast on all the major platforms. You can also find a radio version of the show, Jack. I also want to mention yourtestdriver.com. If you're looking for reviews, news, guides, uh, we have all sorts of new guides there. I just put up one yesterday on uh, yo-yo car deals and making sure that you're leaving the car the car dealership with a car that actually belongs to you. So check it out, yourtestdriver.com. Jack, again, great to be here and love talking to you every week. Yeah. Well, love talking to you, Chris, and I'd like to point out my my newest book is out there in the wild and, and doing pretty well. It's a crime thriller called Dance in the Dark. It's available on Amazon and both Kindle and paperback editions, so look for that. It's Dance in the Dark. Kind of a fun read, I think, so look for that. Uh, thanks for listening to America on the Road on this radio station or on this podcast. We're available as a podcast on all the top podcast platforms, so join us again next week for another edition of America on the Road. Hi, this is Jackie Red, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs, my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him, He meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel, so he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon. 
and at E.M. Lancey Publishers. Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red. Thanks for checking it out.